Chapter forty five, part two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty five, part two. During the long struggle for the Sunday opening of museums and art galleries, the orthodox dissenters were against us, and even Quaker John Bright, though he voted for the opening, did not revive the testimony of George Fox against the Sabbath. I told him once that a speech in public like his talk in private would unlock the galleries. But he said that the matter had been damaged by being involved with Christianity itself, and by Sunday not being a day of rest in France. But at that very moment the clergymen of the English church were with us. I once was a member of a deputation to the government to plead for the open Sunday, and of the twenty-seven parishes in London all but three were represented. At a meeting held on the subject in the Lord Mayor's mansion, a dean of Rochester, seeing Henry Irving present, said he would be glad to see him performing one of his grand dramas before the people on Sunday. The most active leader in that movement was the late Septimus Hansard, rector of Bethnal Green. This admirable man I knew well. He was liberal enough to use my sacred anthology as a prize in his night school for working people. So devoted were his labors among the poor in that lowest quarter of the city, that he was stricken down successively with scarlatina, typhus, and smallpox caught during his parish visits. In the last case he sank in his pulpit while preaching and when a physician pronounced it smallpox he refused to go to the hospital in a cab for fear of infecting the cab, and called for the hearse, and was taken to the smallpox hospital some miles away stretched in the hearse. Nor are the charities of the clergy restricted to ordinary relief. They minister to the higher sense of the poor, whose only contact with art and beauty was then in the music and ornamentation of the church. In Shoreditch, in the heart of London, the Reverend Mr. Noble, a ritualistic clergyman, every year pressed his independence to the extreme of getting up a miracle play at Christmas time. My wife and I were invited, there were no payments, and I remember the horrible evening in which we first pressed our way through sleet and fog to his church. Beautiful tableaus of the Nativity were presented by members of his congregation, with a chorus of angels in luminous raiment who sang the ancient hymns and carols to poor people who beheld through happy tears these visions, shining amid their moil and sorrow. For a good many years I wrote for Harper's Magazine articles about various regions of England, personally exploring them, and I also made investigations in all the counties associated with the Washington family, Northampton, Yorkshire, Durham, Westmoreland, Cumberland, etc. In all of these places my main dependence was on the clergyman, they alone were competent to assist my researches, and interested themselves in them, and although I had become rather notorious as a heretic, and was careful to let them know that I was the minister of a rationalist society, this made no difference in their hospitality. They invited me into their houses, unfolded their church registers, and accompanied me to historic places. At Epworth, town of the Wesleys, the Wesleyan minister knew nothing about them, he sent me to an old man of his flock who told me that the only man who knew all about the Wesley family was the rector. 
This gentleman, Canon Overton, and his wife took me away from the inn and devoted two days to my researches, and even when I was investigating the life of Thomas Paine at Thetford, the venerable rector Fowler did all he could to assist me. In no instance was I ever treated with disrespect by a clergyman. In some places the people were ignorant and rough, the clergyman and his family being the only persons of refinement and education among them. No such family would bury itself far away from the centres of culture and pleasure were not the clergyman a functionary of the state. He is there for the culture of the country, for the humanities, a scholar and a gentleman, and if his church were disestablished, reduced to mere sect in competition with vulgar sectarians, the clergyman would not be there. He has no training at his university for such work. Disestablishment would be like a toppling down of lighthouses on rough moral coasts. As for the creeds and formulas, they have no more effect on the masses than if they were Latin. They offend only the few that can understand them. Altogether, with the music and the responses, they make a pretty Sunday concert. It is the refinement and benevolence of the clergyman and his family that practically make his gospel. I used to submit these views to the most exact thinkers among my friends, especially to James Syme, editor of Nature and author of The Life of Lessing. He was brought up among the Scottish Calvinists and was a critical skeptic, but entirely concurred with me. And one evening, when our little Sunday evening club of Calumets met at my house in Bedford Park, I made this the theme of the talk. Not one of our own dozen was a member of any church or chapel. We agreed that disestablishment would be the means of throwing the masses under the influence of illiterate and superstitious sects. Yet all agreed that our free-thinking societies were performing a necessary function in criticizing the creeds, enlightening educated people, and thus surrounding the church with restraints on clericalism and assisting its broad and tolerant wing. Had there been no Martineau, there had been no such Archbishop of Canterbury as Frederick Temple, and no such dean as Stanley. I was once walking through Westminster Abbey with Rev. Philip Brooks, not yet bishop, and we came upon a large placard, hung on a column on which were printed solely the eight lines of Emerson, beginning, O'er England's abbeys bends the sky, as on its own with kindred eye. The brilliant American's eye sparkled, and when we were presently joined by Dean Stanley at that spot, and all talked of Emerson with love, neither being Emersonian save by the leaven of his spirit, I remembered the power Emerson ascribed to thought. It could raise a whole popedom of forms. I listened to the conversation of two men who had carried their church to a liberal height beyond Unitarianism. Some friends of mine in Boston left Unitarian King's Chapel and joined the church of Philip Brooks with the same progressive feeling and pains of separation I had in leaving Methodism for Unitarianism. As we sauntered through the Abbey, Dean Stanley explained to us, with his quiet humour, why deans of Westminster have exceptional immunity from Episcopal interference. It is because the first dean of that abbey was consecrated by St. Peter himself. Late in the night before the consecration by bishops was to take place, a boat came up the Thames, and from it there landed a mysterious man, dressed as a prelate, who knocked at the abbey door, and, when admitted, sent the keeper to awaken and bring there the priest about to be consecrated. After consecration the new dean said, "'But how do I know your authority?' The man from the boat opened a basket he had brought, revealing a large and peculiar fish, 
and said, "'When the archbishop comes to-morrow, present him with this fish. He will know who has consecrated you, and the ceremony will not be repeated.' The dean added that at one time there was a discussion as to whether a dean of Westminster might not claim a seat in the House of Lords. At any rate, none of his predecessors, so I understood him, had ever been interfered with by a bishop. When Colenso, the heretical bishop of Natal, visited London, some of the evangelical prelates whose deprivation of his bishopric had been set aside by the courts, forbade clergymen in their diocese to open their pulpit to him. But Dean Stanley defied them by inviting Colenso to preach in Westminster Abbey. There were intimations in the press that for once a dean of Westminster was to be grappled with. A short time before the sermon was to be given, Lady Augusta Stanley, the dean's wife, was prostrated by the illness that proved mortal, and Bishop Colenso would not risk adding to his friend's anxiety any trouble of the kind threatened. There had been no prohibition sent to the dean nor to me, Colenso told me, but there were probabilities of bitter controversy, and Stanley is in such trouble about Lady Augusta that, persistent as he is, I have resolved to leave London sooner than I had intended. Colenso was a gentle and modest man, disinclined to become the central figure of a conflict. He had come to England simply to secure justice for Langabalele. He gave us a lecture in a small hall, and in beginning said, I have for so many years been speaking the language of another race that I do not feel sure of being able to address you rightly in my native tongue. The words were said with simplicity and an entire unconsciousness of their pathos. Somehow, after knowing Colenso and listening to him, I found a certain felicity in the nonsense first written when his heresies first appeared. There was a my lord of Natal, who had a Zulu for a pal, said the Zulu, look here, ain't the Pentateuch queer, which converted my lord of Natal. This learned and eloquent Englishman, with his superb head and figure, giving heed to the awakened doubt of the dark-skinned heathen he went out to convert, was a typical figure of the new generation. We were summoned by great scholars, even by some like Professor Legg, who had been missionaries, to sit at the feet of those vulgarly called heathen, Buddha, Zoroaster, Confucius, through whom the genius of other races was expressed. In 1853 at Concord I had begun making extracts from Oriental books in Emerson's library. I continued to add to the collection, and in 1860 printed at Cincinnati my Dial, every month's selections of the kind under the heading, The Catholic Chapter. After my settlement at South Place, 1864, I began taking my second lesson from some Oriental work, and after a year or so the two lessons were selected without any discrimination in favor of the Bible. The innovation was from the first much commented on, and in a few years my accumulation of extracts was sufficient to enable me to respond to the desire of my people for a volume of them. Although I put a great deal of labor into my sacred anthology, it was charming work. Sometimes I was reminded of the way in which we used to hunt over the shoals at Narangaset Pier, to find one pebble that was precious. The dear old librarian of the India House, not yet housed in its palace at Kensington, sympathized with my purpose. That man, Dr. Rost, remains in my memory as a character that ought to be portrayed by a Nathaniel Hawthorne, were another possible. 
unworldly and unselfish, carrying in his head treasures of learning, remote from roaring London. He manifested surprise and pleasure that any one should need exactly what counsel he could bestow. He pointed me to the great masses of unpublished translations, and there I passed many days. The larger portion was useless for my anthology. There were endless details concerning body and mind mingled in the sacred instructions. I employed several Hindus and Persians to search books not translated. I was encouraged by R. M. Childers, and shall never forget the delight I experienced when he sent me Buddha's excellencies. My hunt for eastern flowerets brought me into further acquaintance with Professor E. H. Palmer of Cambridge University, England. He revised several Persian translations for me, and but for him I might have known nothing of several fine pieces of Nizami. He said that he regarded the Persian ideas as the finest, and had repeatedly told people that when they had thoroughly studied those books they would begin to know something about religion. The sacred anthology was not compiled for Orientalists, nor for critical scholars, but to provide thoughtful readers with some idea of the ethical and religious geography, so to say, of the world, and also to provide myself with a book of ethnical scriptures from which to read lessons from my pulpit. Typewriting was unknown in 1872 to 1874, and in order to distribute the selections under their various headings, my wife and I fairly carpeted the floor with them. Nevertheless, the volume did please the eminent scholars, and brought me cordial letters from Martineau, Tennyson, Tyndall, Professor Newman, Miss Cobb, and many others. But that which was most gratifying was the immediate use to which it was put in various regions. Walter Thompson, a member of my society who had lived in India, where Oriental writings are less accessible than in London, paid for an edition to be distributed gratis among the Brahmins and scholars there. Dean Stanley spoke of the work in a sermon in Westminster Abbey, and quoted from it these Sufi sentences, If thou art a Mussulman, go stay with the Franks. If a Christian, join the Jews. If a Shia, mix with the schismatics. Whatever thy religion, associate with men of opposite persuasion. If, in hearing their discourses, thou art not in the least moved, but canst mix with them freely, thou hast attained peace, and art a master of creation. The sacred anthology was used in several Unitarian churches in England and Scotland, and in a large number in America, for pulpit lessons. The press notices were universally favorable, but one, by Professor Weber of Berlin, began with the words, Vox populi vox dei, so interpreting the Greek motto in my title. The lines are from Hesiod, Works and Days, Book Two, and the translation being, The utterance does not wholly perish which many peoples utter. Nay, this is the voice of God. I was distressed on finding that the plural peoples, which so widely separates the thought from the utterance of any populace, was overlooked by Professor Weber. Thus Hesiod's saying was exhumed. I never saw it cited. Only to travel the road to corruption previously trodden by the phrase of Cicero, Res Republica Res Populi, Cicero's Republic, one twenty-five, which may have suggested the vox populi invention. For this is a comparatively modern invention, European democracy putting on a classic mask. 
The irony of it is that Hesiod's lines refer to the care of people in various countries not to pollute with excrement streams flowing to the sea. It occurred to me that the trivial superstition might have grown out of a sanitary precaution, and that Hesiod wrote more wisely than he knew. In 1873 I did not believe that the voice of any populace was inspired, though I did not then realize that in every nation the majority are always wrong. But I did, and do, believe that when many different peoples, races, unite in a belief of principle, local egotism and provincialism are sufficiently withdrawn for some moral or physical common law to be implied, if not expressed. I had long been convinced that the Bible, ignorantly called Hebrew, owes its place in human interest to the fact that it is an anthology of many peoples, though largely altered by the doctors of one race in their attempt to adapt all the contributions to their own dogmas. The first copy of the sacred anthology was sent to Max Müller. It happened to be just before the meeting of the International Oriental Congress in London, 1873, and the first public mention of the work was made, to my surprise, in the address with which he opened the proceedings. He said, a patient study of the sacred scriptures of the world is what is wanted at present more than anything else, in order to clear out ideas of the origin, the nature, and the purposes of religion. In the end we shall be able to restore that ancient bond which unites not only the East with the West, but all the members of the human family, and may learn what a Persian poet meant when he wrote many centuries ago. I quote from Mr. Conway's sacred anthology, Diversity of worship has divided the human race into seventy-two nations. From among all their dogmas I have selected one, the love of God. Professor Max Müller also wrote a signed review of my work in the Academy, which attracted the attention of scholars everywhere. The popular success of the sacred anthology, and the applause of the journals, led to a much more important kind of success, of which I may speak freely as I wrote nothing in my book but its brief preface. Max Müller told me that the interest in Oriental literature stirred up by the anthology inclined him to undertake the publication of the sacred books of the East, and asked me about the financial support likely to be obtained. My anthology was printed and bound at my own expense, Trübner selling it on commission. My outlay was covered by subscriptions, and my profits were good, though I gave many and contributed my royalties in the edition donated by Walter Thompson to India. I expressed to Max Müller my delight in his enterprise and willingness to help in obtaining subscriptions. I am thus carrying into my closing days the reflection that my sacred anthology contributed something to the publication of the Sacred Books of the East, the chief religious achievement of the nineteenth century. End of chapter 45 Part 2